The following program contains adult language and may not be suitable for younger listeners. It also contains full nudity, but since it's a podcast, you'd really have no way of knowing that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. These are the lesser stories. I'm Adam Azrael. I'm Anthony Staten. Anthony, how are you today? Doing good. It's good to be back. It is good to be back on this lovely morning, by which we mean this nasty, drizzly, cold, freezing rain morning. You know what, though? Like, nothing's on fire, so I'll take it. Yeah, we're about the only place in the world that can say that, too. Yeah. Nothing's on fire here right now. Although Boundary Waters, it sounds like, is on fire. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe soon we'll get our very own. Or we'll get another round of smoke that'll oh. just try to that was kill wild. me. Yeah, the smoke. And that, that smoke came from Canada. Yeah. So it just, it just started moving. Anyway, that uh, that's depressing to think about. So, happy climate change, everybody. Woo! All right. So today, we are talking about movies. Or movies and TV, I think, was our general yeah. vibe, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, what uh, what'd you bring me? So I went with movies. I don't know about you. I actually did the same thing. Okay, okay good. TV we're saving for a later yeah, episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll do TV. Sorry, TV. You, Sorry, TV. You, you got bumped. Um, I was thinking of uh, <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel. Sorry for Matt Damon. We ran out of time. I don't know if you... <laughs> uh, so I, I dug real deep for this one. Um, by that, I mean I chose probably the most popular American film of all time, The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you, I really had to think long and hard about a movie <laughs> to go with for this one. You know, I learned a few things about Wizard of Oz. I did too. The the f- biggest one for me was that the uh, in the book, the slippers are not ruby. Nope, they're silver. That's what? Why? Okay, that's they, fine. They they made the movie more colorful on purpose because it was, uh, look at the Technicolor, uh, which- Oh, I, that's right. It was yeah. one of the first like feature-length colored- films wasn't it yeah i mean it wasn't one it it wasn't one of the first it was the first like major i don't know the the first one that most people remember anyway sure all right okay so what what did you bring me about wizard of oz yeah so i really couldn't help it with this one because there's so many urban legends and stuff about this movie and it just seemed like a really obvious choice right uh as it turns out a lot of the stuff that actually did happen while they were filming it proved to be crazy enough that it still felt right right at home with our little podcast so okay So before we even get started, the thing I learned while researching this, the 1939 version of The Wizard of Oz that we all know is not the first film adaptation of the classic L. Frank Baum novel. Really? There was actually a silent film version in 1925 directed by Larry Semin, which was a bit more comedy-driven than the film that we all know, and far more bizarre, if you can believe that. I can believe that. I mean, it's funny that it was like comedy driven because there was nothing funny about those books. Those books were no. horrifying. Yeah, it it was kind of in a similar vein to like um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where how yeah, like, they lean more into the fantasy aspect for the movies. But if you read the original books, they're pretty like yeah, they're they're kind of dark and yeah, and messed up. Yeah. Um, if you want to check this version of the Wizard of Oz out, it actually just entered the public domain this year. Really? Um, so I feel no guilt in saying if you just search The Wizard of Oz 1925 on YouTube, you'll find it. I know what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> I haven't watched all of it because silent films are just, I, I just have a hard time paying attention. Sure. It just, you know, whatever. But um, I did learn that the production of this movie basically ruined Larry Semmons' life. 
Uh, he ended up over a half million dollars in debt, which is like $7.8 million today. Good Lord. Uh, he filed for bankruptcy three years later, had a nervous breakdown that put him in the hospital, where he soon contracted super- tuberculosis and died at the age of 39. So there's what? that. So wait, this Larry Simmons is the producer? <laughs> Larry Simmons. He, he was also in, in the movie. I forgot what role he played. I think he might have been the Scarecrow. Okay. But yeah, he was up to that point, like kind of in the vein of like Charlie Chaplin. Okay, it, like, so he, like a big deal. Like, I don't know if he was quite that big of a deal, but he was in, in a similar vein as far as like the slapsticky, um, like stunt-driven comedy. Man. So then th- this movie just like bankrupted him. Holy cow. <laughs> so that was- That's really sad. Yeah, not not a good start to the idea of trying to turn this into a film. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about that one. Let's go with the 1939 version, which I assume just about everyone has seen at least once in their life. Right. Like, even if not on purpose, it's on TV regularly. You'd be hard. Like, if if you haven't seen this at this point, I'm not even calling spoilers. If you have not seen The Wizard of Oz. No. Yeah. Just turn, (laughs) turn the podcast off and go watch Wizard of Oz. And if you don't want to do that, fine, but don't come at us about spoilers. You've had it, your entire life, quite literally, to watch it. It's yes. not our problem anymore. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'd say spoiler alert, but I, I feel like I don't owe that to anybody at this point. No. Um. So Judy Garland famously plays the lead character, Dorothy. Other major roles included Ray Bolger as the Scarecrow, Jack Haley as the Tin Man, Burt Lahr as the Cowardly Lion. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret ha- Margaret Hamilton was the Wicked Witch of the West. Billy Burke was Glinda the Good Witch. Frank Morgan was the Wizard of Oz, and Clara Blandick was Annie M. Um, Mervyn Leroy was the producer. Victor Fleming was the director, and the screenplay is credited to Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Which it's all pretty straightforward on paper. That just reads like it any... reads like the credits of the movie. Yeah. Except the cast and crew for this movie was actually just a revolving door in a lot of respects. And it ended up with a lot of people's names getting left off of it that really shouldn't have been left off of it. Okay. Um, so first, let's go with the director's seat. This movie went through five directors. <laughs> like during filming? Um, All but one during filming. Oh, my God. So Norman Taurog was the first director. He stuck around long enough for them to do the pre-production Technicolor test shots, and I don't know why. There's not really a lot of information as to why but he was quickly replaced by Richard Thorpe they started filming in October of 1938 and after nine days of filming Marvin or Mervyn Leroy the producer yeah the producer uh, he decided that he wasn't happy with the majority of Thorpe's work and fired him after nine days yeah nine days so basically two weeks of filming like what can you do in nine days that goes that poorly that you get fired so the story is that Leroy was worried that he was rushing it and like he had filmed more than he felt like he should have in that short of a period of time and he just didn't feel like he was giving it the care that it deserved so you are too productive (laughs) pink slip exactly you, I mean, may, maybe he was right. I don't, I don't know anything yeah, don't about know. making movies. but um, None of Thorpe's scenes ended up in the final film. They all eventually got reshot for one reason or another. Wow, so he got straight up uh, uh, Justice League. Um, Snydered. Snydered. He got, he got, he he got, got Snydered. Snydered. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that wasn't like they purposely, oh, we're cutting all of his scenes. It's just that w- all the stuff he did for one reason or another, they had to reshoot. Sure. Um, so George Kukor? 
I guess that's how you say he was brought in on an interim basis to help Leroy until a new director was found. He actually didn't shoot any scenes that made it into the movie either, but he was responsible for revamping Dorothy and the Wicked Witch's makeup and costume designs. And he also suggested Jack Haley for the recast role of the Tin Man. More on that later. Okay. Um, then Victor Fleming took over the director's chair in early November and would go on to shoot most of the film. Uh, he stayed on board until February of 39 when he left to take over work on Gone with the Wind. So was this like a normal thing to have that many directors? I in don't and really out? know. I know that it seems like the answer would and and should be no. Now, now, ironically, when he went to um, work on Gone with the Wind, he actually replaced uh, George Cukor, the guy who he replaced on Wizard of Oz. George Cukor left to work on Gone with the Wind, and then Fleming left to replace him on Gone with the Wind. Um, Gone yeah. with the Wind is another movie that had a lot of like trouble during production. I don't know if this was just the way Hollywood was back then, this but is the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. So, so we've just like been whacking through directors. Here. Yeah, and now so Fleming ended up basically all the color portions of the movie that was him. All, uh, of, all of the color portions of the movie, so everything except the very beginning the, except, and the very yeah, end of the movie. Basically. <laughs> um and then uh, King Vidor was brought in to finish the film, so he filmed all the Kansas scenes, which, let's not overlook that. That includes Dorothy singing Over the Rainbow and the tornado scene. It so, totally does. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that, because uh, if you had asked me before you said that whether that scene was in color, I would have said yes yeah. without nope. a second thought. But it's not. It's yeah. it, it's in black and white. Yeah, that's her standing on the fence in the, yeah. the barnyard. Yeah. Um, so he really probably should have gotten a co-director credit because he filmed a couple like iconic scenes in right. film history. But he, I guess, just being a good sport about it, he elected to not really say anything about his contributions to the film until Vic Fleming passed away in 1949. Like nobody even really knew publicly that he worked on it. What a good guy. <laughs> so shout out to him. <laughs> and his name is King? Yeah, King Vidor, V-I-D-O-R. Yeah. Good guy, King. <laughs> uh, so that was a logistical nightmare. Really shouldn't have resulted in one of the greatest films of all time coming from that. Yeah, you, you wouldn't would think, think so. Um, so how about the screenplay? That had to be less of a disaster, right? I would think so. I mean, the you... book existed. No, it, w it was actually worse. <laughs> so let let's talk about the three people who actually got credit for the screenplay first. So Noel Langley was the main screenwriter. He was chosen from several other people who submitted scripts and treatments, kind of the normal process. Okay. Florence Ryerson and Edgar Allan Wolfe co-wrote another one of the submitted scripts, and they ended up being brought on board to help with writing. Uh, they mainly helped keep the film adaptations somewhat in line with the book. That was sort of their department. Um, and then next, some of the names we've heard already. So Victor Fleming along with another screenwriter named John Lee Mayen. Uh, they kind of just sequenced the movie. They added and removed scenes. They rewrote stuff just to make it flow. But they sure. they weren't really script writers. They kind of just... Okay. It was, it was like being a, I don't know, a songwriter versus an arranger. Okay. That's, that's, that, there's, that's more... There's an analogy yeah. that I can wrap my head around. Yeah. Yay for referencing things that are more in our alley than the thing we're doing right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not to say that we're not fantastic at this. We are absolutely the best. We we know so much films 
<laughs> so some of Ryerson and Wolf's work ended up being rejected, and the producer, Mervyn Leroy, actually um, redid some of that himself. Then the string of uh, directors, Thorpe, mm-hmm. Kukor, and Vidor, they all made significant enough contributions that you could really argue that they were screenwriters too. Yikes. In addition, there were a whole bunch of ghost writers on this script. Um, this included Jack Mintz, Sid Silvers, Samuel Hoffenstein, Herbert Fields, and Irving Rescher. There were that many writers? Yeah. And, and they came out like, don't get me wrong, Wizard of Oz, not awful, but it like dialogue-wise, it's no Firefly. Like, sure. What, what is happening that it takes that many ghost writers to come up with it, it, what we now know it's as not Wizard super of Oz. dialogue heavy. No, I mean it, like a little bit, but yeah. Um, so then, lastly, Yip Harburg, great name, <laughs> Yip. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't check if that's actually his real name, but yeah, Yip Harburg. He co-wrote all the songs for the film with Harold Arlen. Um, he was the l- lyricist. Okay. He actually wrote all the dialogue that was included. In, in or led into or out of all the musical numbers, which is a lot of the dialogue. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, isn't it like <laughs> most of the movie? So th- that takes up a big enough chunk of the film that I feel like he should have gotten a lot more credit than just lyrics by Yip Harburg. <laughs> lyrics and most of dialogue by <laughs> Yip Harburg. Um, so by my count, that's 15 screenwriters. That's insane. And that's from a film from the 1930s. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe that's what it took back then. I you know, I suppose it was a developing yeah. medium. Yeah. Now, I, I actually I learned something while I was researching this that makes a lot of sense as far as only giving three people credit. If you look at the credits for most movies, you won't see more than three writers, like, actually in the credits. Okay. I didn't know this, but the Writers Guild of America agreements state that a writer has to contribute at least 33% of a film's final draft to get on-screen credit. Oh. So that's why they never list more than three of them, just because the math works out nicely. Because everybody's knocking out 33.3. Yeah. And then they don't have to like do any stupid math to figure out who's getting paid what amount. They just split it three ways. Interesting. Um, I have no idea if that was the case during 1939. But I don't know. That's um, that's really interesting though. I would never guess that. I like learning things so I can drunkenly blurt them out at parties to make myself sm- sound smart. Can confirm that um, is a thing that you do. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and I'm enabling our listeners to do the same. So absolutely. you're you're welcome. Yeah, all of you are welcome. <laughs> so now, how about the cast? This one is not quite as big of a mess as the writer and director p- positions were, but there's still some stuff worth discussing. So first, Roy Bolger was originally cast as the Tin Man. Okay. And Buddy Ebsen was supposed to be the Scarecrow. Um, Bolger really, and I mean really, wanted to be the Scarecrow. His childhood idol was Fred Stone, who had played the Scarecrow in the first musical adaptation of the book way back in 1902. I didn't know there were... Yeah. How they, many adaptations of this book have there like been? Like, a lot more than I thought. That, like, the, that's only two years after the book came out. Like... I get it. Frank Baum does a bunch of hallucinogenic drugs and and farts <laughs> out six Wizard of Oz books, but but the, like I I had no idea that all of this had spawned from it too. Right. Like I was today years old when I learned there was another Wizard of Oz movie. Right. And I was whatever days old I was the day I researched this and found out about it too. It was like I'm I'm no different. Um. But apparently Fred Stone's performance in that role was what made Bulger want to be an actor when he was young. So he basically just wanted to fulfill right. the role that got him, you know, whatever. 
Um, so he pretty much begged to swap roles with Buddy Ebsen. And Ebsen, as someone without a heartwarming, sentimental attachment to a character in the film, I presume he just shrugged and said, I'm getting paid. I guess I'm the Tin Man now. <laughs> all right. So they switched. Good man. So uh, Buddy Ebsen did all the rehearsals as the Tin Man, and he recorded all the characters' singing parts. Really? Uh, they, they did all the singing. Before they were the- that late in the game when they switched, and the director mm-hmm. was just like, well, uh, okay. Well, there I- was actually a reason for this. Um he filmed some of the early shots while Thorpe was the director during those first, like, two weeks of production. Okay. Uh, ten days into filming, Epson had a severe reaction to the makeup. He inhaled some of the aluminum oh. powder. They were using, like, just powdered aluminum that they were caking on his face. Oh, yeah, that's pretty safe. <laughs> probably fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's probably fine. Um, so he ended up being hospitalized, and he wasn't able to return to the production. So uh, at George Kukor's suggestion... As I mentioned earlier, Jack Haley was brought in to replace him. Mm-hmm. Wisely, the makeup design team went back to the drawing board and they came up with a, a better, safer design for the Tin Man that would, you know, like not almost kill the actor y- playing him. You think? Now, to cut back on studio costs, they only had Haley re record the Tin Man's solo singing parts. Okay. So, like, when, when you hear him singing by himself, that's um, Jack Haley. Buddy Ebsen's singing voice is still in all the ensemble parts. So, like, when they're singing, we're off to see the wizard, that's him. And you can actually tell because Jack Haley is from Boston, so he doesn't pronounce the R in wizard. Uh But if you listen in some of the group parts, Buddy Ebsen, he's got that hard R in wizard. Now all I want is to see, like, Mark Wahlberg as the Tin Man. (laughs) (laughs) We're off to see the wizard. (laughs) The wizard. Um, so as for Ebsen, he dealt with lingering respiratory problems for the rest of his life from this, uh, but really? he was able to return to acting, uh, and he actually p- picked up some big roles later on. You might know him as Audrey Hepburn's ex-husband in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay. Uh, he was Jed Clampett in the Be- Beverly Hillbillies, and he was also the title character in Barnaby Jones. Oh, so. there you have it, kids. Uh, don't huff aluminum, but <laughs> if you do, uh, you know, just keep trucking and yeah. and try not to die. Yeah. You'll be famous, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Props to Buddy Ebsen, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty intense, like, makeup session. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, by the way. Y- this is just you're powdered gonna, aluminum. going to die. It's, it's going to just shred your lungs. <laughs> um, so Gail Sundergaard was a, the original Wicked Witch. Mm-hmm. Um she was originally envisioned as like a glamorous sly character. They were basically kind of ripping off uh, the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Okay. Which was like maybe two years old at that point. That's amazing to think about. Um, so near the end of pre-production, I don't know why, but they decided to revamp the character into more of the traditional ugly hag portrayal of a witch. And Gail Sondergaard wasn't about that, so she just left. And she was replaced by Margaret Hamilton Three days before filming started. Wow. Okay. Mar- so she well, had you know, plenty of time to prepare. Yeah, she had three days to like read the script and prepare. Uh, and it ended up being a very eventful filming for Hamilton. Um, so while they were filming the Wicked Witch's exit from Munchkin Lands, remember she shows up in Munchkin Land and then she, there's like a dramatic flash of smoke and fire and she yeah. disappears. Um, they filmed that with her being lowered through a trap door while the uh, smoke bombs and flash pots were going off. Sure. Which. One makes it look dramatic. Two, it kind of hi- hides the fact that she's being lowered on an elevator through a trap door. On right. The floor. Um, on the second take of that scene, the fire blast went off too soon, 
and she her green makeup was copper based, so it basically just like flash burned like no. instantly. I don't know if you've ever burned like copper. I've seen but it. Go, it's, yeah, it's not quite like magnesium, but it's still pretty bad. That's amazing. So she ended up with third degree burns on her hands and face, and uh, this delayed filming the rest of her scenes for three months. She was in the hospital for a long time. Holy cow! Yeah. So then she came back, and they were doing some like uh, some drop in shots, you know, stuff that they added towards the end. Right. Um, one of them was the scene where the wicked rich, wicked witch, blah, 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 wicked rich, <laughs> is she's like skywriting surrender Dorothy yeah. with her broomstick. She didn't want to do that scene because she'd already had enough bad experiences with like uh, smoke s- with smoke and stuff yeah. during filming. So they had her stunt double Betty Danko sit in for that scene. Um, this basically entailed hanging from a harness while sitting on a specially designed broom with a big pipe coming out the back of it that would spray smoke. Because Hollywood was so safe in the late 1930s, right. <laughs> on the third take, the pipe just uh, spontaneously exploded. Sure, so sure, sure why not? <laughs> this caused this caused like a huge gash in uh, Betty Danko's thigh. Worse, because she's literally sitting on the thing, it caused some internal bleeding, and she actually had to undergo an emergency hysterectomy. Oh my god! So she was in the hospital for 11 days, recovering from. Uh, receiving a bunch of stitches and getting her her baby maker taken out. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so intense! Like you were just sitting on a pipe that exploded. Yeah, yeah. So as we're finding out, this film was just straight up not a good time for the actors. I'm amazed uh, that it ever got released. <laughs> I'm amazed nobody died. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't even limited to the actors that suffered injuries. So one of the most famous aspects of the Wizard of Oz is that all the Kansas scenes were filmed in. Well, actually, sepia. Uh, I didn't know this, but most of the TV broadcasts, they just have it in black and white, but the original film, it was sepia-toned. Okay. And they just, at some point along the way, it got, it didn't get converted or something when they, like, tra- transferred the film. I don't hmm. know. Um, but all the Kansas scenes are filmed in black and white, and then when Dorothy lands in Oz, she opens the door to the house, and she walks out into Munchkinland, and all of a sudden, everything's in color. Um, this was... A process called Technicolor. It was an early film colorization process. That yeah. If you look at any film from like, not even just films, but like cartoons and stuff from mm-hmm. the 50s, 60s, whatever, so they filmed in Technicolor in, in the credits. You see it all the time. It wasn't the first Technicolor film, but it's probably the most well-known early use of it in a live-action production. Unfortunately for everyone working on the film, Technicolor required daytime lighting at all times in order to work. So on a soundstage in Southern California in the 1930s, what this meant was using a lot of artificial lighting that produced a lot of heat. Oh, man, yeah, because it's not, LEDs were not a thing. No, this was all, like, not energy-efficient lighting So it was, like, at hot all. as balls all it, the time. It was basically 100-plus degrees all the time. Also, you're in Southern California in a giant enclosed building before air conditioning yes. is a thing. And then you're adding all those lights. I'm amazed that building did not burn and down. And everybody's in costume and heavy, heavy makeup. Good Lord. Yeah. What an awful work environment. Right. During the peak of filming, the actors were showing up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get into makeup and costume because I mean, it was a whole process. Right. And they were often not leaving until late in the evening. So they're pulling like 15-hour days. In film, that kind of heat. In that kind of heat. Screw <laughs> that. 
global warming clearly got to the land of Oz like long before we ever thought about no it. No joke. Sadly and unsurprisingly, there are some reports regarding Julie Gar- J- Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Julie Garland. Julie Garland. I'm just, I'm on a roll today. You're, you're really crushing it. <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> Judy Garland was 16 when they filmed this. Okay. Um, There's a lot of reports of her being the victim of a good deal of sexual harassment and other abuse during filming. I will stick my surprise literally anywhere but here. Yeah, yeah. Um, The studio basically had her on a cocktail of Benzedrine pills to keep her weight down. And they also had her on a mix of both uppers and downers. It didn't specify what exactly. uh, Just to try to maintain her energy levels during filming to whatever level they felt they needed. Yikes. And... Uh, multiple people reported that Victor Fleming, like, on multiple occasions, like, just slapped her. She was generally the target of a lot of inappropriate comments. I mean, she's one of, like, two major female roles in the film. Right. Well, three. I'd say Glinda's a major role, too. But, yeah, for uh, one, maybe two scenes. Yeah. Um, so you mean to tell me that a young girl surrounded by a bunch of older guys, many of whom were her superiors was alternately sexualized and abused. I mean, I never. I yeah, just Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that Hollywood would stoop to those levels. <laughs> right. <laughs> Weinstein. Oh. <laughs> you got a bad cold. Yeah, it's mm. uh, it was real sudden. Uh, but it I am feeling better now. That's, okay. Well, that, that okay. I'm glad. <laughs> Good for you. Um in all seriousness, that was just this isn't unique to this filming. That's just a lot of people were like led to believe that that was just how things were. Yeah, Me Too wasn't the result of a couple of years of bad behavior. No. Like the entire is... movie industry just was grew up on this. Yeah, it, it's been going on a long time. Um, So that all really sucks, but I didn't want to end this on a crappy note. So the last thing I want to talk about is the munchkins. Okay. <laughs> So in a move that would absolutely never fly today, the way they got the Munchkins was they literally put out a casting call for over a hundred little people to play the inhabitants of Munchkinland. I mean, got I, I don't know how else you would have done it back then. Right? Frankly. But it's not I, like I just I can't see a way that would. I mean, you could have used like children or something. Yeah. Well, they actually did. Um, there were over a hundred and twenty like adult Munchkins that were hired for the movie. They augmented them with a dozen or so child actors that just helped fill out background shots and whatever if they needed more people. Sure. Um, when you watch the Munchkinland scenes, just remember that there's no copy-paste anything going on, that, like, every individual person there is a real little person. There were that many of them on the set at one time. <laughs> and each one of them had to individually be put in costume and makeup every day for filming. So the costume designer for this film, like, who must have been a big deal because he was mononymously known as Adrian. Um, his name Adrian Greenberg, but like he was always just credited as Adrian. That was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, you know Adrian. It's like, yeah, it's like it's, it's not just, you know it's not even a mononym. About. It's just like somebody's cousin that everybody happens to know. Like, oh yeah, it's Adrian. Yeah, it's just Adrian. Dude, open the door. It's Adrian. <laughs> we we brought him down from the deli. <laughs> So Adrian meticulously photographed and cataloged every single one of those people in costume so the costume team could get the right costumes on the right person every day when they came back. <laughs> Which I can only imagine the, the, the costume people. Like, the, I feel like they were kind of the unsung heroes of this movie. No kidding. Yeah. 
Now, there are some conflicting stories regarding the level of drunkenness the Munchkin actors would frequently reach. <laughs> I'm guessing it's a non-zero amount <laughs> that probably produced some ridiculousness. Um, and, and by conflicting stories, I mean, like, that's not just other people. That's even among the Munchkin actors themselves. Like, you're talking about 120 plus people. You're just going to get different stories. But... <laughs> I was wasted. <laughs> you were drinking orange juice. These people were making good money to do this, though. They were all paid around $125 a week in 1939. That's movie. good money in 1939. That works out to well over two grand a week today. Mm hmm. You're telling me you just got paid over two grand a week to go hang out and get drunk on a on a film set. That's amazing. That that's like I would do that today, right? Right now. Does anybody <laughs> anybody know of any uh, open casting calls for right. say six foot tall white men for six foot tall munchkins? <laughs> <laughs> um, the the surviving munchkin actors developed a real close bond in the years after filming, and there were lots of reunions. Did you and, say surviving? Yeah. Well, I mean. People with dwarfism and stuff. Oh, okay. A lot of them tend to. Oh not no, that's true. Okay, I, for time. for whatever reason, I thought you were going to tell me like there was some disaster that took out half the. Okay, no, no, no. All right, all right. I'm, no. I'm with you. I'm with no. you. That that would have been very in line with some of the stories we've heard so far. But no, no, there wasn't like it, it, there wasn't like a flood that wiped out half the Munchkins or anything like that. Hmm. Sadly, we just lost the last surviving Munchkin actor a, a few years ago when Jerry Marin passed away in 2018 at the ripe old age of 98. Wow. Um, Jerry was the middle member of the Lollipop Guild, the one who hands Dorothy oh, really? the Lollipop while they sing their little musical number. Now, I want to give a big shout out to Jerry for being a certified badass because he maintained an active career in Hollywood into his 90s. Wow. Um, one, of his, one of his last roles was in 2010 in a comedy horror film called Dahmer vs. Gacy. <laughs> um, if you go on his Wikipedia page, like look him up right now. Um, All right. What, what, spell his name, please. J-E-R-R-Y. Okay. M-A-R-E-N. Jerry Marin. Yep. And this picture of him. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's from the red carpet premiere of that film. It's currently the main picture on his Wikipedia page if you want yeah. to check it out. But uh, let's just say I can only hope to be half as cool as this guy when I'm 90 years Dude, old. This, this like bow tie, flat cap, cigar combo. I mean, damn. Yeah. So he's... You, if you're just listening, he's rocking a black suit jacket with like a red polka dot bow tie, like one of those hipster newsboy caps, and just the fattest cigar I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it with a look that kind of says, I'm half your size and 90 years old, and I could still kill you without a hint of remorse and look awesome while doing it. <laughs> and if there's anybody that embodies the ridiculousness of Wizard of Oz, I think it's Jerry Marin. So just. That's that's awesome. <laughs> Peace, Jerry Marin. Hats off to Jerry Marin. Yeah. Also, I love that every news article. I'm I'm just scrolling briefly through the Googleness here, and every news article is like Jerry Marin, the last Munchkin. Mm -hmm. Which that's a title that you can carry, right? <laughs> the it, last Munchkin. And also, let's just talk about the fact that the term Munchkin, meaning like anybody who's small and adorable, literally came from this movie. That's L yeah, that that's was, really impressive as well. That actually. that was not a part of the lexicon prior to this film, like. It, like maybe it was a word, because I mean it's in the book, but yeah, it, it, yeah, that, yeah, that I don't know. But e either way, like the the fact that classical literature and can do any any sort of media can add words to our day to day use. Yeah, that's really impressive. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, that kind of wraps this one up. So there were five directors, fifteen screenwriters, 
several recasts, at least three lengthy hospitalizations of cast members, 15-hour production days on a 100-degree soundstage, a comical lack of regard for safety, <laughs> uh, predictably questionable behavior towards the film's female lead, and a bunch of munchkins who were maybe getting absolutely plastered. That's amazing. I, I, I'm both intrigued and absolutely horrified by 1930s Hollywood. Now, granted, I'm also intrigued and absolutely horrified by today's Hollywood, so that's not really anything different. Um, but at least we don't have people's baby factories getting destroyed by exploding broomsticks anymore. Oh I think. That's, I think. Yeah, I can't, as, I didn't, as far as we know, yeah, that hasn't happened as, as far in a while. As, yeah. That's, oh, that is such a brutal injury for so many reasons. Yeah. But at, wow. the, at the end of the day, it's widely considered one of the greatest films of all time. It's all for the, all for the craft, you know? <laughs> All right. Man. So what are we going to? We went from Wizard of Oz to... Yeah, so I also went pretty old. Uh, you you know me. I'm, I'm a pretty big sci-fi person, mm -hmm. sci-fi buff. I uh, I love sci-fi in all its forms. I love reading it. I love watching it. I'm, I'm into it. So I, uh, I also enjoy a bit of sci-fi history. Okay. So we're not going to talk about the very first sci-fi movie, but we're going to talk about the first, like, huge sci-fi movie so quick bit of general background for those of you who haven't studied film history uh, which includes me incidentally one, <laughs> one class in college uh, the very first sci-fi film was Voyage de la Lune uh, which was made in 1902 in France uh, it's it's super fun to watch like you you can find it on YouTube is, is that the one with like the really creepy man in the moon face yeah yeah okay. so that that was like a really big deal is this, the whole idea is these scientists all uh, load themselves into this bullet-shaped capsule and gets fired out of a giant cannon and lands on the moon and it, like puts out one of the moon's eyes and then they get out and they fight the moon men and they figure out that if you hit them with umbrellas they explode like it's it's very whimsical it's a it's it's they uh smashing pumpkins has a music video that did uh some some version of this too uh that might actually be where the people exploding from being hit with umbrellas came from. I, I get the two mixed up a lot, but there, there's a Smashing Pumpkins video that is basically just like this, this whole rip on Voyage to the Lune. Um, this is like and, Mario figuring out that if he jumps on his enemies, that's how you defeat yeah, them. Yeah, like it's 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 ridiculous, but it was really, really cool for the time. Like, you know, you hit somebody and there's this puff of smoke and then they're gone. It's, it's, sure. it's a whole thing. So. That's not the movie we're going to be talking about. That's just okay. there for background. We're going to be talking about Metropolis, which was a silent film that was first released to audiences in 27. That'd be 1927. Okay. The first thing we have to talk about is that there wasn't, like, a huge science fiction movie industry. Like, at that point... It wasn't really a thing. It wasn't. There had been almost zero. I don't want to say totally zero, because I don't know every film ever made. But there had been almost zero feature-length sci-fi films ever made. In 1927. Yeah. Well, and sci-fi really exploded when the space race did. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, there was, there was brief little pops here and there mm -hmm. in sci-fi, and this is definitely one of them. So the director and general centerpiece of this whole operation was a guy named Fritz Long, who was already a name in the German film industry. I'm trying to, he, he, he was like Zack Snyder. I mean, he's, he's done he's a big name he's done a handful of action fantasy films and some people loved them and a lot of people absolutely hated them but either way everybody went to see them like okay. he's, so he's Zack Snyder right so filming started for Metropolis in 1925 in Germany which at that point was still working on digging itself out after basically getting destroyed in World War One right? spoiler alert not the first time they're gonna have to do that yeah <laughs> yeah World War One did not go well for Germany huh? and they were you know 
eventually they'd have a second go, but in between they they'd had Metropolis and they had a film industry. So <laughs> so 1925, they they were coming along and they were at least far enough to have a pretty serious film industry. A big project wasn't unheard of in German film industry. This one was big, big. This was 1.5 million Reichsmarks. So and that's we're just going to be talking about everything in in Reichsmarks. It's not a currency that means anything to anybody. It's fine. It's okay. This, this is a this is a big budget film. Sure. All right. So the thing about Fritz Lang is that he was bug nuts crazy. Like sed- my surprise. Yeah, like sadistic crazy. He put his actors through absolute hell from start to finish. So here's here's a couple of highlights. There's a scene where this crazy futuristic city is flooded and one of the protagonists is trying to escape with like a huge mass of children, which is, you know, pretty intense sounding. Mm-hmm. It's this actress, uh, Brigitte Helm, and 500 children. Okay. Children. Children. Sure. And I really want to emphasize children. So Brigitte Helm and 500 children shot this scene mm-hmm. for two straight weeks doing eight to ten hour days in a pool of water. Was it warm water? No. No, No, it was not. It was cold water. Was it cold by accident? No. No. No, no, no. It was cold on purpose for realism. This dude literally had 500 kids working overtime hours. Overtime. Children working overtime hours in cold water for two weeks straight. The total number of scenes that exist from this is like is like four, right? I mean, sure. this is not like this huge half of the movie. This is just this one little chunk of the movie. So during that same scene, workers in the city just, just you know, as if that wasn't bad enough, workers in the city are trying to stop the flooding, and it's like okay. a huge deal. There's a lot of like classist things here, so like the working class is this whole thing is kind of an homage to them, and they he had extras working in high-powered water jets, and their job, over and over and over and over, take after take, was to fling themselves into the jets as hard as they could and make it look real. And it does look real, because these guys got the bejesus beat out of them doing this. Because they're just, like, over and over and over, they'd, like, yell cut, they'd get restarted again, they'd restart the water jets, and these guys would just run as hard as they could into these jets. I'm assuming this looks like, if you look at a video of somebody in, like, a wave pool, like, on a, a surfboard, like, when they fall down and it just, like, sends them blasting up the thing. You know, a little bit, um... It'd be more accurate to think of, like, if you have ever watched somebody get hit with a fire hose, yeah, like, like at a riot, that. Okay. Just over and over and over and over. Like, your job for eight hours a day is just to get hit with a fire hose riot style. Oh, my ribs are killing me just thinking about right. this. Uh, yeah, no. And he, like, so Fritz Long was a total psychopath to Brigitte Helm, who was the, the female lead in the movie. There's this one scene where she turns into an android after being burned at the stake. It's not she is not turning into an android. She's being revealed as an android. It's complicated. Okay. I'm not going to dive into the plot so Don't hard for it. reasons we'll talk to. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll we'll talk about why I'm not going to dive too hard into the plot for a reason. But uh, the this scene, a couple of things. Number one. It wasn't a stunt double in the robot suit. It was Brigitte Helm, which, okay. like, cool. I, I respect anybody who Jackie Chan's it. I'm in. But number two, when they made the suit, they made it to look like a real robot, quote-unquote real robot in 1925. Sure. Robots, notably, uh, don't require air to live. So they straight up didn't cut any air holes 
She could barely breathe oh in this suit. God. She's like breathing her own recycled air in this stupid suit, plus whatever manages to leak in. They'd leave her in it for hours. At one point, she literally passed out from oxygen deprivation Ugh. during a take in this robot suit. And nobody ever was like, hey, we could drill some air holes. And like, no, no, just wake her up and, and let's go again. So did I already mention that there's a scene where she gets burned at the stake? Yes. Yeah. Uh I'm sensing that it's going to be a problem with what you just described. Right. She caught on fire. Predictably. Yeah, and she literally caught on fire. And they put her out, and then we're like, all right, let's go again. Like, excuse me, sir, I just caught fire. I was just on fire wearing a suit I can't breathe in. Can we read it? No, no, we can't rethink any of this. This is how we're going to do it. There's a million of these. I could go on. They're nuts because he was nuts. So now, coming back around, let's talk about the plot of, of Metropolis. Uh, we're not sure what the plot of Metropolis is. Okay. Like we noted, you can find this movie on YouTube. You can find at least four versions of it on YouTube. No copies of the script survived World War II. Mm. And there's no copy of the original film because it was so long that audiences complained. It's, <laughs> he was Zack Snyder. I'm just... So... So the solution was to bring in Joss Whedon to murder it in order to make it fit. I'm kidding. Oh, okay. That's just, but they, they literally did the exact same thing. They just sent somebody in and sliced that sucker up, and they were like, ah, kidding, this is Metropolis now. So we don't know what the edit looked like. So we, we don't know what the original looked like. Mm-hmm. We also don't know what version 2 looked like, what the edit looked like, because as far as anybody knows, it also did not survive World War II. Right. Okay. So what we have instead is a bunch of pieces of copies which were stored for decades in no particular order. They, so the, in, in 1970, a project started to reassemble it, and they, they had brought in reels from like all over the world, these things okay. that ended up everywhere. Right. So this project in 1970 started to reassemble it, and you can find the whole thing on YouTube and a couple of streaming sites now. But what you can find is still just a best guess. They think they've about got it. <laughs> but but that's like we think that this is how it works like for all we know the plot is totally different so this is as you know, I mentioned earlier this is a silent film that means the score for it was composed and recorded and all of the dialogue was on black cards that cut up the scene super interesting mm-hmm. it's it's cool to watch if you're into that it's it's I kind of land in the same place you do with it where it's like hard to get through the whole thing in one sitting it's really interesting historically yeah. but just like I'm used to movies flowing a certain way and, and silent films just don't, right? But it also, the thing about being a silent film is that anybody can just make new audio for it. Yeah. And, and whatever you think I'm about to tell you, I promise you are wrong, <laughs> right? Okay. So in 1984, a guy named Giorgio Moroder restored and produced an 80-minute version of Metropolis by himself with a new score, or rather with a soundtrack which featured performances by himself, Pat Benatar, Bonnie Tyler, Adam Ant, and Freddie Mercury. I've never been able to find it, and I haven't looked that hard because I don't want Metropolis or Freddie Mercury ruined for me. <laughs> but but this is just thing. People are still doing this, incidentally. The most recent re-release with a new soundtrack was literally in 2019. Wow. So like, people just do this. Like, this is just a hobby or something. People just re-release Metropolis because it's all it's all public domain now. Mm-hmm. 
So going back to 1927, remember how the film had a budget of 1.5 million Reichsmarks? Sure. Because of all the reshoots and takes and drowning of children, I, I don't know that that actually happened. I'm just assuming you just can't have that many kids working in water for that long without something bad happening. So the, the final budget of that film, 5.3 million Reichsmarks. It literally oh. cost six times as much as it was supposed to, and we still have no fucking clue what this movie is about we don't know we don't what we don't know what it's supposed to look like we all we have is our general general guess like there so, might still be huge chunks of it completely missing no idea <laughs> for all we know we are missing half of the movie so money well spent <laughs> So I think that about wraps us up for uh, episode three of season two of the Lesser Stories. Let's uh, let's cut out half of the audio and put it all together out of order <laughs> when we release this episode of the podcast. Good luck figuring out what this was about. <laughs> something, something, Munchkins, robots. Now I want to see Munchkin robots. Damn it. We're going to have to make a movie. You know, all we right. need to get into the business. Uh, anyway, uh, don't forget you can find us online, www.thelesserstories.com. You can find articles, you can find links to episodes, you can find the podcast on all your favorite platforms. Already, Obviously, you already found it once, so, you know, good luck. Do it again. Hey! And uh, who knows, by the time you're listening to this, maybe there's, like, merch or t-shirts or something. If there are, it's on the website. Whatever, go nuts. And we love story ideas, too. I don't think we talk about this enough, but you yeah. can always just... Send us an email through the website. There's a there's a contact page on the website. Like if you have something you want us to talk about, we want to know about it. We have a huge database, a backlog of stories, but we we always want more. So yeah. if you've got some crazy historical something, hit us up. We want it. Yeah. Uh, like I'm always finding new things, and I like live for this stuff. So like there's got to be so much more that I have no idea about. Yeah. And. Like, please, just send us anything you've got. Yeah, worst case, we already know, and we'll still be delighted that somebody, you know, was listening. So, And for all you know, you're the one that gave us the idea. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we, it's, we'll, we'll never turn you down. All right, and uh, I guess until next time, keep the cameras rolling and, and, I don't know, try not to drown any kids or blow up any people on brooms or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good sign-off, right? <laughs> Sounds right. good to me.